Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Deals and money. We are constantly seeking deals and money as real estate investors, and I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate and follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals or you can follow up with your investors and you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time, go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Sometimes the best deals you do are the deals you walk away from. That's a hard lesson to learn, but it's critically important because otherwise you're signing guarantees a lot of times as a developer. And one bad deal can take down four good deals if you're not careful. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Bob Volker. Bob is joining us from Athens, Georgia. He is the author of Managing the Complexities of Real Estate Development, a training manual for young developers attorneys, and debt and equity associates. He has retired after 38 years as a real estate attorney and developer focused on urban, complex, mixed-use, and high-rise residential projects. Bob, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. Bob, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? 
Sure. By background, I'm a CPA, went to law school, became a tax attorney. In 1986, Congress decided they didn't like tax attorneys anymore, changed all the tax laws. I moved over into real estate, happened upon one of the first low-income housing tax credit projects in Texas in the late 80s, became the first attorney in Texas to focus on that as a practice area, left shortly thereafter and became an affordable housing developer and developed 3,300 units of affordable housing in Texas, Oklahoma, and Arizona. Came back to the law firm when my daughter went to college and got put on a big project out in LA, the W Hollywood Hotel and Condos at Hollywood and Vine. It's a $620 million mixed-use project. After having never worked on hotel deal, a mixed-use deal, or a condo deal, so it was a totally different experience for me. I spent two and a half years of my life working 250 hours a month just on that project. Came back to Dallas in the Great Recession, worked on a bunch of projects where we used public incentives to try and fill equity gaps. Did that for about four years and then got hired by Streetlights Residential to become their VP and also their in-house legal counsel and did that for about five and a half years, developing high-rise and mixed-use projects in California, Texas, Georgia, and Florida. And so that's kind of how I got to where I am today. And then then I just retired and, and moved to Athens, Georgia. All right, let's go quickly because there's so much to cover here. CPA, law school, tax attorney, the perfect background to exploit, not exploit, but to truly understand how these tax credits work because they were new at the time. Mm -hmm. And because of the amount of leverage you can have with these tax credits, is that why you became a developer for affordable housing? Well, it was an easy place to enter into being a developer because you're using other people's money for the most part. It didn't take much from the developer to get into the business. Initially, before I became a direct developer and had my own development company, I worked for a company out of Florida that had lots of experience in doing this. They're one of the largest affordable housing developers in the country at the time. I did that with them for a couple of years and they shut down their Texas operations. And so I started my own development company. It was an easy way to enter into the business. And then I learned some really hard lessons as I was doing it. So we'll talk about that later, how I managed to lose a lot of money doing it. So Bob, how many years were you watching others in development before you got started? I guess from really the time I got out of law school in 84 to 94, and then from 94 to 96 when I was working for the company out of Florida. So about 12 years of watching how these projects were put together and some of the complexities and difficulties and what it meant to sign guarantees and all those fun kind of things. Can you walk us through some of the details of your first development project? Oh, wow. Take me back a few years. Well, I'll tell you one of the early ones, anyhow. I did a project over in Fort Worth. Affordable housing is very difficult to get through the city because a lot of times they don't want affordable housing. And Fort Worth had empowered homeowners associations to kind of fight these deals. So I went and found a site over in Fort Worth, and it was because there was a nonprofit over in Fort Worth that was doing housing for previously homeless families. And they wanted to do their own deal. And they'd chosen a site that I knew wouldn't score from the state scoring to get the credits. So I went and found a different site for them. And then they ended up contributing a million and a half dollars to the project. I brought in the low-income housing tax credits. And then we got bank financing. And we developed, I think it was 250 units of affordable housing. And 50% of the units were for previously homeless families. We built a 5,000 square foot after-school building for the kids, that the parents would kind of operate with one of our professionals help after school. And then the teenagers were involved in helping the young kids. 
So it's a really cool way of kind of building a sense of community. And by proposing it that way, we actually got through the city's process because we actually had to rezone the site, which isn't easy to do affordable housing. But because we had involved the community so much, they kind of welcomed our project. Was it hard for the lawyer in you not to want to just go to battle with the city and try to win? (laughs) That's another part of my background is I've actually sued cities before for fair housing violations. I kind of had a reputation for doing that in Texas. And yes, it is hard for me not just to want to battle cities and say, hey, you're just excluding apartments, you're excluding low-income people. And ultimately, that also has some impacts on minorities. So you can make a fair housing claim pretty easily that way. But one thing I learned after having gone that route of suing cities, including the city I lived in for fair housing violations, which if you want to be popular in church on Sunday morning, that's a really (laughs) good way of doing it. One thing I learned is that the emotional and physical toll on you and just the time and attention it takes to go through that process of taking on a city, you're better off cutting your losses early, figuring out that you're going to have political opposition and going elsewhere and just saying, look, I understand. I don't agree with your position, but I'm better going to find another deal and getting it done. I love that creative solution that you put together. Has that been a reoccurring theme in much of your career as a developer? It has because probably more so in Texas and a lot of places because Texas is so kind of conservative, if you want to call it that, politically. They very much empower people who are in power, so to speak, to fight projects. And it doesn't matter whether it's an affordable housing project or a mixed-use project. It's going to create traffic. It's going to create noise, whatever the issues are that the local homeowners have. If you're better off early on, part of what I wrote in my book is one of the things you want to do when you're looking for a site is go really early and talk to the city and say, look, I not only want to know what the rules are, you know, how it's zoned, what the setbacks are, all those kinds of things, but I also want to know the political climate. And I want to know who I need to go talk to to figure that out early, because you're better off just saying, let's go find another deal if you face that kind of opposition. So yes, that's been a very consistent theme. And who's the initial person to have that conversation with? Is it a city manager or clerk? Mm-hmm. Typically, you start with the planning and zoning department. They typically have a pretty good feel for that, and they'll tell you who you need to talk to. It depends on the city. Some cities have council people who are elected at large, and other cities have council people who are elected from district. So you want to go talk, like when I did our deal in Fort Worth, I went and talked to the city councilman for that district. And a lot of those cities where they have district by district council members, if one councilman for that district doesn't want your project, all the other people are going to support them and they won't vote for you. They scratch each other's back, so to speak. So that if I have a project I like and I want your support, you'll support me because it's in my district and then vice versa. If I don't like the project, you support me and you'll kill it. It creates a really weird political dynamic and a development dynamic, but it is what it is and you got to deal with it. What were some of the big mistakes and hard lessons learned in your career? (laughs) Well, I'd say the biggest one, the deal where I lost the most money was we saw that we were having problems making our numbers work on development projects, on affordable housing projects. So we said, well, maybe we'll just take the contractor's fee out of the deal, so to speak. We'll just be our own contractor. So I went and found somebody to act as my construction manager, construction VP, put him in place. And then we started hiring our own subcontractors. And the very worst thing you can do is go hire the cheapest subcontractors you can find. You may think it brings your project in budget, but it will also kill you from a timing standpoint. And the likelihood that they're going to have lien claims that are filed against the project because they aren't paying their bills or they're not going to get it done on time. It's a time and a budget problem if you've hired an inexperienced subcontractor. So 
I ended up losing a ton of money on some projects because of that very issue. We tried to be our own subcontractor to cut costs. I would never advise doing that. And Bob, why did you write a book on development, equity? What was the inspiration behind that? Well, I retired a year and a half ago and didn't want to sit around and do nothing at the house. So I said, okay, how can I give back for what I've learned? And one of the things I noticed over time is I ran the real estate department at a law firm I was at for a couple of years is senior lawyers are very poor mentors because they don't have time. They're chasing bigger and harder deals. So they just dump projects off on their associates. Then when I went over on the development side, I found even worse, senior developers are as ADD as they come. They are just way out there on the scale because they're always chasing deals and they love making relationships and they never sit down with their junior analysts and their junior developers to walk them through all the intricacies of a project. So I learned a lot as a developer that I wish I had known as an attorney when I was drafting documents. And I learned a lot of things as an attorney that I wish developers don't read documents for the most part. They just sign whatever the lawyers put in front of them. But there are things they really need to know or impact on how the project is built, how it's run, how you report to your investors, how you report to your lenders. So I wanted to kind of bring all that knowledge together in one place so that, like you said, young lawyers, young developers, debt and equity associates, they need a place where they can go learn the process without learning it on the job over five to 10 years. Because that's really how you learn. It's almost like a really bad apprenticeship where you don't have a mentor is how a lot of learning happens in real estate development. Yeah, I definitely see that. Bob, you also mentioned using public funds to bridge equity gaps. What is that? Well, if you have a project that for whatever reason, either federal or state funding is available, it could be a project where say under the EB-5 program, I don't know if you know anything about that, but where we were bringing money in and out of China to invest in real estate deals. When I was working on the W Hollywood project, we had a gap because what happened is that project opened in 2010, couldn't have been a worse time to open a $620 million project. And the equity investor for the hotel and the condos wanted to reserve money to make condo for sale loans because the condo mortgage market just dried up in that period. And so they said, well, we're going to take the money away from the nightclub and the restaurant that we're going to use to finish out. We're going to use that for condo sale loans. And then we're like, okay, where are we going to come up with the money now to finish out the nightclub and the restaurant? So we went and raised $35 million from China through the EB-5 program and invested that in the nightclub and the restaurant to finish it out. And it's really inexpensive money. Basically, the people just want their visas in exchange for bringing funds into the United States. And then when the recession hit and I came back after the Hollywood project, I started going around to the law firm's clients and saying, okay, who has projects now in the middle of the recession? I knew it was going to happen. Debt sized down and equity was going to size down and you're going to end up with a funding gap. If you kind of understand how the capital stack gets built. So I saw that gap. So I started going around to clients saying, show me your projects. You're having trouble getting funded. So I found projects from various law firm clients that needed to fill gaps you can do it through EB-5. You can do it through all kinds of state and federal financing. We use tax increment financing in Texas is another way of doing it. So I did a lot of that kind of work. And really, low-income housing tax credits is a way to fill a gap. Historic tax credits are a way to fill a gap. New market tax credits. And over time, I ended up working on all those kinds of projects. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? 
Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. EB5, can you explain to the best ever listeners what that is? Well, it's somewhat shorthanded referred to as visas for investment. It was done mainly with Chinese investors because there were a bunch of them who wanted to get visas in the United States. Not so much that the investor wanted to come to the United States, but they wanted their children to come here to go to college and ultimately be able to get jobs. So I forget the dollar amounts of what they used to be. I think it was if you invested half a million dollars in the United States and you created X number of jobs with that investment, you then got a visa for yourself, your spouse, and all your children under age 21. And they typically got like a, say a 2% rate of return on their money. You have to go through a regional center, which is kind of one of the federally licensed organizations that are allowed to participate in this program. And they're the ones who aggregate investors together is typically you don't just need half a million. You may need 10 million or 20 million or 30 million. So they aggregate all the investors together by going over to China, putting on kind of like a syndication show for the investors where they talk about the projects they're going to invest in. They get all those investors together. They then invest in your project. Typically, you're paying the regional center a lot more than 2%. So you're paying them like 7 to 8% on the money. And they're then stripping off the excess return. The regional center is. That's how they get paid for their efforts. And the, the foreign investors, then only get, say, 2%. And if they create those jobs and they stay in place for X number of years, then they get a visa for themselves and their family. That's basically what the EB-5 program is. And has that been phased out? You know, I haven't paid attention to it. I think it still exists. I just don't okay. think it's used very much anymore because it was really popular when equity was hard to get. Like I said, after the Great Recession, once equity started coming back in the marketplace, now there's so much equity chasing real estate deals. It's really a pain for a developer to go through the process unless there's no other way for him to get the money. So I just think it's not as popular as it was years ago. So what do most developers leave on the table For example, what's the low-hanging fruit from all of these other tax programs? What's the lowest-hanging fruit, rather? I don't think the tax increment financing, different states have different ways of doing that, but basically it's where the states create these tax increment districts where they say, we want to see this district redeveloped. 
So they take and they say, okay, as of today, say a piece of real estate has a million dollar land value, but it hasn't been developed. If you agree to invest in that particular district, they take all that additional tax that's generated above that $1 million base, and they put that in a fund and they invest it back in the district. So what you may then be able to get a loan from that district, sometimes they float bonds to do it. You may be able to get a loan from that district to be able to fill a gap in your project. And what's great about that is, again, it's a low interest loan. Sometimes it's a grant to create redevelopment in a particular district. So that's something I don't think very many people know about. And various states and cities have their own rules on how they do that. Yeah, I didn't know about it. Thank you for bringing that up. Bob, you've done a lot with affordable housing over the years. Can a developer still take advantage of that today? Sure. Yeah, the low-income housing tax credit program and tax exempt bond program that goes with that still exists today. It's still out there. There's two different tax credits. There's a 9% credit and a 4% credit. The 9% credit is competitive. And typically there are six to eight times the number of applicants as there are credits to give out. And it's a scoring system. So when I was doing it, I'd apply in multiple states in the hope of getting one or two deals a year. We might submit 10 applications. And that's a lot of legwork to go through to just get one or two deals a year. But if you don't, you may end up with zero deals a year. So the other way to do that is you do it through tax-exempt bonds, what they call 4% credits. And that's less competitive, but that even has become more competitive than it was back when I did that. So just two ways of doing it, but both of those still exist today. And how do the historic tax credits work? Again, it's been a while since I've done those, but the concept is that if you have a particular building that's designated on the federal historic records as being historic, and you agree to put X amount of rehab into the project, if you buy the project for a million dollars, if I remember right, you have to put at least a million dollars into the project. And if you do that, you get historic credits that ultimately will pay you back about 40% in value. You, You get the credits and you turn around and sell them to an investor. And it pays you back about 40% of what you put into the project. Kind of up front, once you get the renovations certified and you get the renovations completed as being done the way you said you were going to do them. So it provides a lot of equity again for your project that otherwise a lot of these historic buildings wouldn't get renovated. All right, Bob, you're making a lot of this sound easy because you've got a lifetime of experience in all of these different areas. How do we find out about all these different programs? (laughs) Well, the best way to do it is go find a lawyer who's done a lot of this stuff. And there are lawyers and law firms that kind of specialize in this type of work. And whatever location it is you're trying to do a project, go to the real estate department, tell them you want to talk to them and a tax attorney and say, okay, I want to know what programs are out there. The other way to do it is go talk to the city. Typically, there's an economic development department that's pretty well versed in this kind of stuff. But most of these kinds of incentives involve some form of, I'll call it public good, where it's renovating a historic building, helping provide affordable housing, creating jobs. So your whole project needs to be oriented around some type of social good. If you just want to do a project in a really high-end neighborhood and you're building a high-end hotel, you're unlikely to get any real help there from the city or from the federal government. But if you're doing something that has a public good to it, there may be some type of benefit out there for you. And if you're doing something in a area that doesn't need any incentives, can you still get tax abatements for putting a lot um, of money into a project? Sometimes cities will do that if it's providing jobs or it's providing something that the city wants to see. For instance, a convention center hotel. 
in a high-end area. Some of the suburbs in Dallas have done this. There are developers who specialize in that kind of work where they go and they work with cities. The city may help them float bonds to provide their debt and provide them special terms for that. The city may provide them with sales tax abatements, for instance, or a sales tax rebate. Those kinds of things you can sit down and talk with the city about. Again, it's kind of a public good, but it's in a nicer area than otherwise you'd think it would probably be in. So it's not providing that deep subsidy for projects that are more difficult to do, but it is providing a general public good. What's the biggest mistake you see developers make? Oh, finding a site, becoming so invested in that site. I mean, say you've got three or $400,000 into putting up earnest money, some preliminary plans, you've spent some money on lawyers, et cetera. And then just never looking back and reevaluating whether that deal still makes sense. So what happens is, oh, I'm already into this 300,000 in a year. I'll just keep going. Well, if you don't really do your homework and make sure that your pro forma works, we're going to get higher rents because we're going to have lower operating costs because, and you start believing your own story too much and not saying, wait a minute, let's do a gut check. Does this deal still work? So I state in the book that sometimes the best deals you do are the deals you walk away from. That's a hard lesson to learn, but it's critically important because otherwise you're signing guarantees a lot of times as a developer. And one bad deal can take down four good deals if you're not careful. Yeah, that's great advice. Bob, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Real estate investing advice. I'm talking to some young people about what part of the field to enter into. And I'm telling them that hotels are one of the first things to go down and the last things to come up. Sometimes the economy will slow down. You don't need as many warehouses and people build warehouses like megas are easy to build. But multifamily is one area that just continues to shine and has historically. So my preference has always been to invest in what's what I know for one, but also I just think that it's the most stable of the real estate classes. So that's probably one of my best investment advice ideas. The other thing is if you can ever invest with a general partner in what they call the promote in a project, that's a great way to put a relatively small amount of money at risk, but get a really high rate of return. The problem is you are in the riskiest position, but if you have a developer with a solid track record and a project that really seems to make sense, you can really make a lot of money that way. What is the promote? Well, when developers do projects, they put a relatively small amount of their capital at risk versus using other people's money, limited partner money, co-general partner money, whatever it is. So the developer initially in the waterfall of profits coming out of the deal, they'll get part of the profits based on how much money they put in. So that's just kind of pari pursue. Everybody's getting back based on what they put in. But then as your limited partner investors and general partner investors get more and more rate of return, their ownership percentage starts to drop off and the developer's ownership percentage starts to go up. So that gap between the developer's pro rata share and what the developer ultimately makes out of the project over time, because the other people's in investment stake is going down while theirs is going up. That's what we call the promote. It's your oversized rate of return based on your investment. If there is a multifamily syndicator that has no experience in development and they have an interest, I wouldn't call it a passion, let's say an interest, maybe because the returns are higher, would you recommend they transition into development or um, just continue as operators? Well, if they're a syndicator, I guess they're just kind of taking people's money and investing it in projects. Being a developer is a kind of a totally different game. It's a lot more due diligence. It's a lot more being on the ground, dealing with the battles of development. 
It's facing off with contractors and subcontractors on a daily basis. If you're going to get into that business, you better understand what you're getting into and you better hire the right people to help you do it. Can it be done? Yes. Have I seen people do it? Yes. It's not something I'd venture into lightly though without having the right team in place. Bob, I have a couple of restaurants that I own and I talk to a lot of restaurateurs and every one of them, if you ask them, would you recommend your kids get into the restaurant industry? They all are vehemently opposed to having their children in that business. Would you recommend your children or younger people get into development? If you ask me the question about being a lawyer, I might answer the question differently, but (laughs) uh, sometimes there's great experiences to have, but you don't want to do them long-term. Being a developer, yes, I would recommend that you get into doing that. I think it's great because you learn to juggle a lot of balls to get the deal done. You're really multitasking to the nth level. I refer to it as juggling chainsaws and knives while on a moving landscape. So I think it's just great experience to have. I would start as an analyst and move my way up to being a junior developer to a developer because you'll learn a lot of the hard lessons that happen by seeing five, 10 projects a year for 10 years before you kind of become a full-fledged developer. So I wouldn't just jump into it on my own and go say, let's go do a deal. But what I recommend to my kids to do it, yeah, it's really an exciting career. I love it. Bob, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right, Bob, what's the best ever book you recently read? Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's kind of the history of the two Roosevelts, Abe Lincoln and LBJ, and all the trials and tribulations they went through to do what they did as president. Bob, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Right now, it's spending time with young people, talking to them about the development business, because I think they're our future generation of young developers and young leaders in the United States. So I'm really enjoying just having conversations. I'm having a call after this call with a young development guy. And Bob, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Well, probably the easiest way is to email me at bobvolker9 at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to do that. Or you can find me on LinkedIn is another way to do it. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn right now. Bob, I got to thank you for sharing your time with us today. An illustrious career starting out as a CPA, going to law school, becoming a tax attorney, learning about affordable housing tax credits, becoming a developer, $600 million projects. So thank you for sharing all of your time with us today. Ash, absolutely my pleasure. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with anyone you think can benefit from it. Subscribe, like, and have a best ever day.